So, um, welcome to the final spring session of our fourth annual Religions and the Practice of Peace uh, Colloquium series. I'm David Hempton, the Dean of the um, Harvard Divinity School. So thank you all for joining us tonight for this very, very special uh, event. I'd like to begin by extending gratitude and a warm welcome on behalf of us all to our featured guest, Ben Ferenc, uh, for being with us tonight. We're tremendously grateful. Actually, this is a rather strange story. I hadn't seen Ben for about a year and bumped into him in Grand Central Station on Monday. Uh, he was on his way to the UN and I was on my way back from um, uh, supporting a film that, uh, that the Divinity School uh, has been involved with, uh, Notrum Dunblane, which is about uh, school shootings in Dunblane and Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, which is a great f little documentary film which won the best um, um, uh, documentary award at the Tribeca Film Festival in, in New York City. So anyway, Ben um, uh, guided me to the proper platform. You could see that I was uh, <laughs> uh, an Irishman lost in a big city and was, uh, was very kind to me. So we appreciate, Ben, you traveling to Cambridge to engage with us in this important and timely conversation. It's a long-awaited moment and a great honor to have you with us. I really appreciate you. you making the effort. We'd also like to extend our thanks to tonight's respondents, Professor uh, Gabriela Bloom of Harvard uh, Law School and Professor uh, Brian Hare, once dean of the Divinity School, um, now at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, for also joining us to um, uh, share their expertise. Also very grateful to uh, Federica D'Alessandro, uh, who has been instrumental in conceiving and planning tonight's session, and to our co-sponsor of the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School. As always, we'd also like to express our appreciation to RPP's generous supporters, including um, uh, uh, Karen Budney, who's with us this evening, um, for helping to make these and other RPP events possible. And I'd like to thank all our RPP staff and graduate assistants for a really tremendous work and organizing these events, so thank you uh, 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 all of you. So our topic tonight is sustaining peace, the role of ethics, law, and policy in promoting a new international security paradigm. Throughout this academic year, we've been in conversation with colleagues across Harvard University in connection with our Emerging Sustainable Peace Initiative, the SPI, to foster leadership, collaboration, and creativity for a more humane, harmonious, and equitable world. In a Sustainable Peace Working Group, our graduate students have been eliciting the perspectives of fellow students, faculty, staff, and alums from diverse uh, backgrounds and disciplines, and have been expanding this inquiry to community members from the public. We're asking, Big questions. What will it take to make peace in our human family substantive, shared, and sustainable? What are the multiple dimensions of violence and peace that we must take into account, from the institutional and structural to the spiritual, ethical, and cultural? How can we develop approaches that are proactive and holistic enough to prevent and transform destructive, destructive conflict in ways that, um, that address its complex interrelationship with humanity's other big problems? from social and economic inequality to environmental degradation. 
So how can we mainstream sustainable peace as an integral goal of leadership across sectors? What changes in leadership preparation at our universities can help us advance such a trend? So these are big questions and we're delighted to have Ben Friends with us to help us think about these urgent issues. He's been thinking about these things for over half a century. He's a very distinguished and inspirational person to help us along. A graduate of Harvard Law School, a longtime friend of Harvard Divinity School, a place where he was fed during his law school career, he told me. Um, uh, they can't afford it at the law school. Um, 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 a longtime friend of, uh, of our school, and he was the chief a chief prosecutor for the Nuremberg uh, trials. He's been a pioneering contributor to international law and its institutions over the past century. A lifelong advocate for his favorite phrase, law, not war. He's a prolific author on, on all of these subjects. Among the attributes that make Mr. Friends' tireless advocacy for peace so compelling is that he brings to it a combination of hopeful optimism and stark realism grounded in deep knowledge of the power and promise of the rule of law, as well as first-hand experience with the most atrocious cases of war and inhumanity as a US soldier in Europe during World War II, a liberator of the Nazi concentration camps, and an investigator of that unspeakable genocide and other mass crimes against humanity. He also brings a historical perspective that balances a keen awareness of the deficiencies in the current state of our international legal tools and institutions with an appreciation for the great strides that the international community has made in developing them to date. He brings a practical vision for reforming them and strengthening their effectiveness. And even while understanding the magnitude of these challenges, he carries a faith in the potential of compassionate and committed individuals, including our young people, to work out ways to protect and share life on this planet more sanely more humanely for present and future generations. So we're so pleased to have you. I'm also delighted now to introduce our moderator tonight, Federica uh, D'Alessandra, whom we've been fortunate to have this year as a visiting fellow at Harvard Divinity School, an advisor to the Religions and the Practice of Peace program, and an active contributor to our Sustainable Peace Initiative. Federica is a leading international law and public policy scholar working on issues of national and international security, foreign policy, international law and diplomacy. Prior to her appointment at HDS, she has been affiliated with the Harvard Law School as a visiting scholar, researcher, the Harvard Kennedy School as an associate and later as a fellow. She often counsels and advises governments um, and international organizations on war crimes prosecutions and atrocity prevention, as well as on United Nations reform and peacekeeping efforts. Forbes recognized her in 2017 as one of 30 under 30 most influential European thinkers in law and policy. In recognition of her work and advocacy, she's received the William Reese Smith Jr. Outstanding Young Lawyer of the Year Award from Lexi, uh, LexisNexis and the International Bar Association. In 2017, she was named Italian of the Year by the Italian Journalist Agency. Uh, I voted for you. Uh, <laughs> So, Federica, thanks so much for being here, and over to you to moderate tonight's discussion. Thank you.
Thank you, Dean Empton, for that very kind and generous introduction, and also for your gracious hospitality here at the uh, Divinity School. Um, before I start, I wanted to thank Liz, um, Laura, Andrea, and everyone else at the Divinity School who's worked hard to make tonight's discussion a possibility. Um, I would like to start by saying that uh, for me to be at the Divinity School at a time where you're thinking through questions of sustaining peace and what it means and what it entails has been an enormous privilege. First and foremost, as someone who's dedicated to specialize on international law and policy of uh, peace and security, including prevention um, and response to mass atrocities, I subscribe, I'm, I'm uh, driven and I subscribe very much to SPI's core objectives. Uh, SPI's goal of reducing destructive conflict, preventing violence and fostering flourishing for all is indeed the very rationale upon which um, the body of laws that regulate my work have been developed and conceived. Uh, the reduction of conflict and of its devastating impacts uh, is very much what underpins the law of armed conflict and the bettering of the human condition is very much what underpins international human rights law. What's been particularly refreshing about being with SPI this year is also that uh, by virtue of SPI's search for a holistic and comprehensive solution and approach to peace, that's also forced me in many ways to get out of the trenches of international law and policy and, and to confront myself with people that approach problems and, and thinking about solutions in different way, in ways that are much different than what lawyers and policymakers normally do. Uh, so that, to me, has been extremely enriching as an experience. And so um, that has helped me to take a step back and start thinking in terms of bigger picture. Uh, and, and, and for people with my, with my background, part of, the, uh, what, part of what thinking in terms of a bigger picture entails is asking, why is it that with so many laws and so many institutions and so many dedicated people um, that are in place and work day and night to make sure that um, you know, conflict is reduced and that we reduce human suffering and we promote human flourishing, we continue to be confronted with, with violence and human suffering. Now, um, some thinkers within this very academic community, like Professor Steven Pinker over at the Department of Psychology, will tell you that the world is in a much better place today than it's ever been. That if you look at aggregate data, uh, today way less people die to violent conflict, for example, than ever before in human history. Um, in his most recent book, he went one step beyond that and said, actually, if you look at all uh, significant measure and, uh, measure, measures, uh, humans are making progress. Uh, and indeed, he argues that we're witnessing a humanitarian revolution that places life and happiness at the center of values and that uses reason and evidence to design response to new challenges. And I like to believe this. Yet, I'm certainly aware that this humanitarian revolution is uh, utterly slow and incomplete, and that the performance of the very institutions connected with this humanitarian revolution has been underwhelming at best when not wholly inadequate. For example, I'm aware that one of the institutions that is uh, the most dear to me because of what it represents has not fulfilled its promise to humanity. Uh, the United Nations was set up in the aftermath of World War II to save, save future generations from the scourge of war by maintaining and enforcing international peace and security, promoting human rights, and promoting international de in promoting development. Uh, yet, over 70 years after the UN was established, the world remains rife with conflict, human rights are constantly under siege, and the prosperity brought by economic development has not been fairly distributed. 
And while it is true that today less people die to violence than at any other time in human history, a recent UN and World Bank joint report called Pathways for Peace reveals that for the first time since the end of World War II in 2010, the number of major conflicts uh, worldwide has tripled, fighting in a, no in a growing number of low-intensity conflicts has escalated. Uh, the same report re reveals that in 2016 alone, for the first time in over 30 years, the number of uh, countries that experience violent conflict has grown and albeit much of this violence remains entrenched in low-income countries. Some of today's deadliest conflicts in fact uh, are occurring um, in um, uh, countries that, are, that have higher income levels and most importantly stronger institutions. Also the same report tells us that more and more conflicts today are internationalized and that is because countries continue to intervene in other countries internal conflicts. Now, the problem of war and the violence is, it, it follows it, is not certainly a new problem. Uh, to the country, throughout history, war has been the um, standard and default way of conducting international politics, and paradoxically, uh, of enforcing international peace. That was until in 1929, a group of visionaries that uh, Yale professors Hona Hathaway and uh, Scott Shapiro have recently called the internationalists in their book, came together to sign the Calabrian Pact, through which war was repudiated as an instrument of foreign policy and um, a vision for a new world order uh, was laid out. A new world order, they argue, so radically different from the old world order that it would become the exact photonegative of that world order, where states no longer have the right to conquer other states, waging aggressive <coughs> war is a grave crime, gun diplomacy is no longer legitimate, and economic sanctions are not only legal, but the standard ways in which international law is enforced. Now, of course, the Calabrian Pact did not stop war. As a matter of fact, within a few years, uh, World War II broke out. So why am I telling you this? Well, because um, in my opinion, and in the opinion of, of many, uh, what the Calabrian did uh, was to change the normative, um, to change the intellectual conversation about war. And what they succeeded in do was to change not just um, the normative, was to change the normative paradigm uh, of what should be and could be considered normal or even ideal. These internationalists that I'm talking about are what Professor Cass Sunstein at, um, from the law school in 1996 uh, defined norm entrepreneurs. Uh, that is a category of people who are interested in changing societal norms. Uh, and if they're successful in their endeavors, they can produce norm bat wagons and, or norm cascades that lead to substantial changes in the normative course of history. How that occurs can be explained through the work of other two professors, one of whom is actually at, at the Kennedy School, um, Professor Catherine Sinking, and her co-author, Professor Martha Fenmore. In 1997, they uh, postulated what they called the life cycle of a norm, which is, in a very much simplified way, kind of goes this way. First, we have the emergence of a norm, when norm entrepreneurs arise with a conviction that something must be changed. These norm entrepreneurs use existing organizations and, nor and norms as platforms to socialize and proselytize um, this new idea, framing their issue to reach a broader audience. In this phase, some states will adopt the norm because maybe it reflects their ideals, maybe they're um, compelled to do it by their domestic constituencies. 
And eventually, enough states will adopt this norm, uh, or enough constituencies will adopt this norm, that then a tipping point is reached, and, and then the norm cascades, and other states that didn't want to join in the first place are compelled to join because, um, because they succumb to, uh, among other things, international pressure to do it. And over time, the norm is internalized, professionals press for codification and um, universal adherence, and eventually conformity becomes so natural that um, we cease to even notice the presence of the norm. And this leads me to my second point. Um, the challenge of our generation, in my opinion, is not to stop war as an instrument of foreign policy. Wars among countries still occur, and powerful countries uh, that want to go to war will do so no matter what. Um, but that is not because the, no the norm isn't there. That is because we haven't raised the cost, we as domestic constituencies, but also as the international community, we haven't raised the cost of <coughs> contravening uh, to that prohibition uh, against the use of force. Uh, and that obviously is a challenge that we should confront, but that's not by far, in my opinion, uh, the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge of our generation is to confront what professors Gabriella Bloom, who's here with us tonight, and uh, Professor Jennifer Walsh have called in the individualization of war, who, uh, which means how do you address the root causes of violence across the board before they escalate to full-blown conflict? How do you address individual grievances before they're brought to the battlefield? And how do you contain militaristic responses to uh, the problems caused by the ever-increasing global interdependence. This is why I believe we need to engage in new thinking. And it is against this background that what I see this community do here at HDS with the Sustaining Peace Initiative is incredibly, incredibly uh, appealing and refreshing. Engaging in, thinking, uh, in new thinking to reduce destructive conflict, prevent violence, and foster flourishing of all is exactly what an, a leading academic institution like Harvard should be doing. Uh, I'm encouraged to say that we're not by far the only ones who are thinking in these terms. Uh, and maybe I will ask all of you if you might think that we might be witnessing a new intellectual trend. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, the United Nations itself, for example, in response to the same disturbing trends I described, and of course in response to their own failures, have launched a parallel conversation, which has actually developed separately from this conversation, but very organically uh, in terms of what the questions are that they're looking at, uh, in terms of how they can themselves better equip the system to sustain peace by addressing all stages of conflict, this is in, all, in their own words, uh, in all dimensions, aiming to out prevent the outbreak, escalation, continuation, and recurrence of conflict. So much similar to what SPI is doing. In the context of the discussion, for example, the United Nations has recognized the intrinsic and inseparable relationship between sustaining peace and uh, human rights. It has also noted for the first time the, the, the stabilizing effect that uh, military interventions have on ongoing crisis, even when these are carried out in the name of peace building and humanitarian purposes. More broadly, um, it has called for a stronger emphasis to be put on, including by making a strong financial cases for prevention as opposed to response to conflict, and on strengthening partnerships for sustaining peace, including by investing in women and youth as peacemakers uh, rather than victims. Now, to be clear, none of this um, is, is new in that 
is new per se. None of these elements are new. We've seen the United Nations discuss these before. Uh, what I think is new is the fact that for the first time, as far as I am aware, the UN is making a conscious effort to bring all these different bits and pieces of their own uh, peace building uh, approach into one coherent vision, which is similar, something similar to what SPI is trying to do here at HDS. Something else that I find interesting is that the United Nations is doing this at a time when there is enormous pushback from powerful member states on some of the very norms and uh, notions that underpin this vision for sustainable peace, including the importance of protecting human rights and the prohibition and enforcing the prohibition against the use of military force in international relations. Some will say, of course, that thinking this, just launching a new agenda um, uh, and thinking that this will imply real change, um, um, you know, it's is not, it, the nothing will really happen until the UN gets serious about Security Council reform. And I agree with that. Um, but I also agree with the fact that I also want to believe that this means something. And that is because um, I'm convinced that change does not happen in a vacuum. And so, whether you're an activist, a peacemaker, an advocate, or a policymaker um, driven by a vision and ideal, I think you look for every opportunity to see and to do good. So against that, dis that background, and because I'm uh, very aware that you're not here to hear from me, um, I'm going to ask you all, first our speakers, but then hopefully with the rest of the audience we'll have an engaged discussion on these issues. I want to ask you, do you think that we're facing a process of new process of norm formation with regards to the way we conceive a sustainable form of international peace and security? If so, what can we learn from our respective disciplines in the conceptualization of a new sustainable peace and security paradigm? What holistic approaches and cultures of peace do we need to pursue um, to materialize this vision? What are the challenges that we will be confronted with? Uh, what is the role that the civil society and religious communities can play in advancing this vision? And um, how and what can we teach in terms of leadership skills for the next generation of norm entrepreneurs to be well equipped? To guide us through this reflection, we're privileged to benefit of the presence of three of the most influential thinkers on these matters. Professor Gabriella Bloom is the Wright Oster Professor of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law at the Harvard Law School, specializing in international law, international negotiations, the law of armed conflict, and counterterrorism. She is the faculty director of the program on the international law of armed conflict and on the program on negotiation executive, executive board. Um, and she also served as a former senior legal advisor to the Israel Defense Forces and as a strategy advisor to the Israeli National Security Council. Professor Bloom is the co-author of The Future of Violence, Robots, Germs, Hackers and Drones, Confronting a New Age of Threats, uh, written with Benjamin Watts, which uh, received the Roy Palmer Civil Liberty Prizes. She also co-authored with Philip Heyman, Laws, Outlaws, and Terrorists, which also received the Roy Palmer uh, Civil Liberty Prize. She's also the author of Islands of Agreement, Managing Enduring Armed Rivalries, as well as of journal articles in the fields of public international law, international negotiations, and the law and morality of war. She's currently working on a book titled The Fog of Victory as a Carnegie Fellow. Um, 
Brian, Professor Brian Hare is the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of Practice of Religions and Public Life at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the Secretary for Social Services in the Archdiocese of Boston, specializing in ethics and foreign policy, religion, religion and world politics, and Catholic social ethics. A member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Board of the Arms Controls Association, and the Global Development Committee, he was previously president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA, staff at the US Catholic <coughs> Conference of Bishops, and faculty at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, and the Harvard Divinity School. His publications include, among many others, The Moral Measurements of War, A Tradition of Continuity and Change, and The Moral Dimension in the Use of Force. Last but not least, our honoree for tonight, um, who is also a dear friend and a personal hero of mine, as well as the very personification of what I guess I'm referring to as a norm entrepreneur. Benjamin Friends, as we heard from Dean Hampton, is a Harvard alumni. Um, he's an American lawyer. He's the last living prosecutor of the historic Nuremberg um, military tribunals. And um, after he became the chief prosecutor in the landmark Eisenskruppen trial that has been widely referred to as the biggest murder, murder trial in history, uh, he became um, the director general of the Jewish Restitution Survivors Success Organization as well as other charities um, in, in his quest to provide victims of Nazi crimes of all backgrounds and faiths with compensation and restitution. Um, something that hopefully we'll have an opportunity to discuss. But he wasn't done there. Uh, for the past 70 years, Ben has been recognized as one of the most indefatigable proponents of international justice as a means towards world peace. He has advocated his entire life for the establishment of a permanent international criminal tribunal that would have jurisdiction over the same crimes he tried in Nuremberg. And um, he also fought his whole life to make sure that wars of aggression state a criminal offense under international law. <coughs> Both of these goals actually have come to fruition. Uh, in 1998, the world came together to sign the statute of the Hague Base in, uh, International Criminal Court. And just this past December uh, in New York, the member states of that court came together to decide to activate the court's jurisdiction on the crime of aggression. Uh, which has been, which had been frozen under the statute for a series of um, uh, political reasons, thus completing what many have called the legacy of Nuremberg. In his 99 year of age, Ben remains one of the most vocal champions of the rule of law, including accountability for the illegal use of military force. For his service to the cause of international peace, um, he has truly become a human rights icon. Uh, he's received the French Légion d'honneur, the Erasmus Prize from the Dutch government, the MC Bassuni Justice Award, the Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolent Peace Prize from Martin, uh, um, Martin Luther King's family, and uh, the one prize that I know is dearest to his heart, the Harvard Law School Medal of Freedom. Uh, the city of The Hague is named a footpath next to the Peace Palace, um, the Benjamin Ferenc path to honor him as one of the figureheads of international justice. And at the end of this month, uh, they will also be inaugurating a bench that says, the features is, is um, slogan, not law, not war. 
So we will begin today's discussion with a series of questions that I will ask him to give all of us an opportunity to get to know him a little better. And then after that, uh, we will invite Professor Hare first and then Professor Bloom uh, to come to the podium and um, uh, give a few thoughts in response. And after that, uh, we'll have a conversation uh, with all of you. Uh, now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Ben Friends to the floor. to be here with some old friends, Father Hare, you know, I get his blessing, I'm way ahead of the crowd. <laughs> I could use it. <laughs> now you're going to ask me some questions? Yes. Well, go ahead. We were listening long enough to all that stuff. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Ben, um, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your history, and your personal journey? Who is Ben Ferenc? I don't know. I've never met him. <laughs> 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 but, to give you a quick rundown, uh, I was born in a little village in Transylvania. Now nobody ever knows where Transylvania is because it doesn't exist anymore. My sister was born in the same bed I was born, a year and a half before me. She was born in Hungary. I was born in the same bed. It was Romania. So what did I learn? I learned that it doesn't matter what the country is called. It's how they treat their people that counts. Well, both of them agreed that it was good to kill, kill all the Jews, and uh, it made life quite impossible for them. My parents fled to the United States, like many refugees today, with two infant children. No money, no skills, no job, no future, but it seemed better than what they had left behind, which was danger and poverty. My father became a janitor in Hell's Kitchen, and that's where I was raised my earliest years in New York. Well, um, so I have certain sympathies with the refugees of today, those who are going through the same type of beginnings. Now let me jump from there, since she's already told you, I was a graduate of the Harvard Law School. So how did you get from there to there? Well, um, I got there somehow. And uh, when I got there, uh, the war broke out. Japan attacked the United States, Pearl Harbor. Everybody I knew went down to enlist, including me. I chose, to, chose the Air Force. I wanted to be a flyer because if you, you don't get wounded and come down in parts, either you go or you, you don't go. But my legs were too short to reach the pedals. <laughs> <laughs> they still are too short to reach the pedals. Matter of fact, my pants keep getting longer as I get older. <laughs> uh, well, I finally ended up as a private in the artillery, about which I knew nothing, and uh, landed on the beaches of Normandy, where I had the unpleasant experience of seeing soldiers in American uniform floating face down in the water. The tanks stranded in the sand. Uh, 
I crossed the Rhine on a pontoon bridge driving a jeep, being dumped in the water at any time, and uh, participated in every major battle of the war, for which the Pentagon, uh, when I finally got through, I think I spent more time fighting the U.S. Army than the German Army, but nevertheless, they gave me five battle stars for not having been killed in any of the major battles of the war. And I thought that was a pretty good idea, not only giving it to those who got killed, but to those who managed not to get killed. But one of the interesting assignments, the most interesting assignment, I would say, during the war years, uh, they discovered that uh, because I had done the research for a Harvard professor who wrote a book on war crimes, Professor Sheldon Gluck, who was a criminal law expert at Harvard at that time, uh, and the President of the United States had declared, together with the other heads of state, that the Germans would be held to account. And one day I was tapped on the shoulder of the 115th AAA gun battalion and said you were to report to General Patton's headquarters, Judge Advocate Section. And I did, and I was told that uh, they had been directed to set up a war crimes program and that my name had been forwarded from Washington. I assume it was via that Professor Gluck. The colonel who greeted me, he first question was, what's a war crime? They had no idea of war crimes as we know it today. War crimes meant absent without leave, conduct on becoming a gentleman, desertion, things of that kind. I believe I was the first man in the United States Army in World War II to deal with war crimes. What did that consist of? It's two things. First, there were the Allied Flyer cases. American and British planes would be flying over territory which was held by the Germans, uh, either in France or in Germany. And they were shot down uh, very often by our own anti-aircraft artillery. They failed to give us the right signal, identification, friend or foe, or they had been injured on a flight. When they landed on the ground, which was occupied by Germany, they were almost invariably beaten to death by the mob. People in the town would come out, beat them with their shoes, specific cases, crack their head open with a crowbar. Uh, and my job was to get in there fast, find out what were the facts of the case, who were the perpetrators, where should they be apprehended, send out arrest orders to pick them up, uh, and they would be put on trial before United States Military Commission trials, which existed and were set up in the Dachau concentration camp long before the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg was set up. And these cases are best forgotten and probably forgotten deliberately. Uh, we would, let me say, with the Allied flyer cases, uh, there are many interesting experiences. Time doesn't allow me to go into all of it, but these were normal people on the ground killing prisoners of war uh, with a feeling of vengeance. Uh, I speak now of a specific case where there was a young woman whose two children had been killed in a bombing raid uh, shortly before, and she joined in the beating the Allied flyers who had been shot down, two or three of them. And her mother said to me as a witness, I told my daughter, German girl shouldn't behave this way. And uh, 
I felt rather sympathetic, I would say, to the motivation, and I placed her only under house arrest. I didn't take her off on all. I said, you remain under house arrest, cannot leave without me, and I made my report. And she was eventually picked up and put on trial together with the fireman who had really used a crowbar and split the man's flyer's head open on the ground. I went to his house, of course, as well. Uh, he had fled somewhere. I asked his wife where he was. She said she didn't know. I said, do you do his laundry? Uh, she said, yes, of course. I said, show me where. I took a, one of his shirts, which still had blood on it as evidence, and used that as part of building up a case for trial. To jump a little bit ahead, to give you some feeling of what it's really like. I happened to be on my way home, I guess, and the war was almost over, and uh, the trial of this girl was on. And there were several other <coughs> war crime suspects as well. There was in benches like these, maybe 40 or 50 of them in a room. And uh, when the time came for this girl to say something, she stood up and she fainted. And the doctor came there and I asked him, how is she, how is she doing? He said, she's all right, but she's pregnant from an American soldier. Uh, whether it was rape or whether it was consensual, I don't know. Uh, I mentioned it only to give you some feeling uh, what happens in times of war. Here is a girl, a murderer, participating in a murder. She may have deliberately sought the child because the Germans believed if you were pregnant you wouldn't be executed. Um, and these were the Allied Flyer cases. But that was nothing. Then began reports of uh, coming to headquarters that people seemed to be streaming out of some kind of a work camp and it looks like they're all starving. We did not know the name or the word concentration camp. It looked like a work camp. And they'd hand that to me. By that time, I was already with the exalted rank of a corporal. Uh, and I would head out to the camp. Uh, Buchenwald was one of our earliest camps. In order for me to do my job, I couldn't do it as a, more the rank of a corporal. So I had arranged to have a pass signed for me uh, by uh, General Patton's command that everybody was to give me every possible assistance and uh, etc. And uh, I was very seldom called upon to use that, but occasionally I was. And that pass, which I then had stamped secret, because I didn't want to have to show it too often, because it had been written by a drunken lieutenant at my request. <laughs> I had dictated it, and I would head into the camp. Who's the commander here? I would say, I want 10 men immediately, close off the tribe school for the office. Uh, Nobody goes in or out without my permission. They would say, yes, sir, snap to attention. I didn't wear any insignia, of course. And uh, I would seize the records in the camp, which were very thorough, the Germans were very thorough. We'd list how many people were killed, who was the commander in charge at the time. Uh, and with that evidence, I was able to put together very quickly a uh, case. Um, and uh, the sentences were also very quick. Uh, they would call somebody there, Herr Schmidt, stand up. 
You're accused of being an accomplice to murder in the concentration camp, blah, 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 David says, so whatever. Um, what do you have to say for yourself? Not guilty. I was only obeying superior orders. I wasn't there. I was the cook. Uh, I was visiting my grandmother's funeral. All kinds of lies. Judges would hear it very well. Sit down. Next. They'd go through the whole room in maybe an hour. And then everybody would go out, the judges would say, we'll take time off now, and get her a sentence, come back five minutes later, all the defendants are found guilty and sentenced to death, and then they were taken to Landsberg prison and hanged or shot. We don't hear much about that. That was before the Nuremberg trials began. Uh, now let's shift to what's the famous Nuremberg trial, the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Justice Jackson, very distinguished judge from the United States on leave from the Supreme Court, represented the United States very nobly. And the war was over. The other three nations, France, Britain, Soviet Union at the time, and China, uh, were partners in the deal. We rounded up the most notorious <coughs> named Nazis we could find and catch. Hermann Goering was one. Goebbels and others whose names have probably been forgotten by this audience. And we packed them in, 22 of them, into this main courtroom in Nuremberg. And the trials went on. Uh, many of them were sentenced to death and executed. Then in addition to that, that's where I come in. Uh, the United States said, look, this is just a snapshot of German life. We want to get a more thorough picture. How is it possible that a civilized country like Germany could engage in all of the atrocities uh, which I had described? And uh, the atrocities that I had described were coming into these camps and seeing what was going on. Dead bodies lying all over the floor. Crematoria going, bodies stacked like cordwood in front of the crematoria waiting to be burned. People starving every disease groveling in the mounds of garbage for a morsel of something edible. Um, the SS fleeing, running out, Americans chasing him, inmates catching some of the guards and beating them to death. Uh, horror, horror is the only word for it. And uh, I gathered whatever evidence I could of the crimes. Didn't take long, usually. The Germans had good records. Uh, and I'd make my report. We'd send out arrest warrants for the commanding officers of these various camps. So we had this third layer, subsequent proceedings, as they were called. And uh, I had gone home when the war was over. I had passed the bar exam. I'd finished my legal studies, and I hoped to get a job somewhere. I came back with about 10 million other soldiers. And uh, one day I got a cable from the Pentagon, dear sir, you never called me sir, three years of military service, uh, uh, would you please come to Washington, we'd like to talk to you. And I went to Washington, and there I was interviewed for a job. And the first man who interviewed me was a man by the name of then Colonel Mickey Marcus, who was a West Pointer, Jewish boy who had gone to West Point in order to get a free education. Uh, and he said, Ben, you have to go back. I said, me go back to Germany? You must be kidding. In order for me to go back to Germany, you have to declare war on Germany again and be losing. So, <laughs> so 
<laughs> he said, well, somebody else here wants to talk to you. And uh, he referred me to a Colonel Telford Taylor. Telford Taylor later promoted to general and he was appointed to conduct 12 subsequent trials showing the other layer of German society, how the doctors who had performed medical experiments, the lawyers who had perverted the law, they made the film Judgment at Nuremberg based on that theme, the SS who carried out the executions, the diplomats who lied to the world, the industrialists who put up the money to build the concentration camps on the understanding that they would get unlimited supply of free labor. Uh, all of that was to be shown in the subsequent proceedings. And Telford Taylor interviewed me and uh, he said, I've checked your record and I find that you're occasionally insubordinate. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, sir, that's not correct. <laughs> Uh, I am not occasionally insubordinate, I'm usually insubordinate. <laughs> I don't obey any orders that I know are stupid or illegal. But I've been checking up on you. He was also a Harvard man. <laughs> I said, I don't think you'll give me that kind of order. And you can't find a better man. And he said, he smiled, he said, I'll take you, you go with me. <laughs> we later became law partners in New York and were very good friends. And he became a professor at Columbia University, then Cardoza Law School in New York which I've had the pleasure of name, naming some halls and some programs in his honor. Anyway, Telford Taylor said, look, you know all about the investigations of uh, these trials, and uh, we have to have the evidence. We have suspects, but we have no evidence. Unless we have the suspect and the evidence, you've got nothing. So you go and find the evidence. So I set up an office in Berlin, and uh, the army was in charge, the Pentagon charge, and I had about 50 researchers going through all the German archives and uh, bringing up whatever evidence looked like it was incriminating. And one of my researchers walked in one day and he said, look what I found. And he handed me a big folder, like a loose leaf folder. And it's Aragnus Meldoma aus der UDSSSR. I'm just showing off my German. It means events in the former Soviet, in the Soviet Union. And these were daily reports of special squads called Einsatzgruppen. Nobody knew what it meant. Most people, including the dean of the Harvard Law School, could never pronounce it. <laughs> these were squads whose assignment was to follow behind the German lines and eliminate, kill, murder, exterminate. They never used such language. They said eliminate, you know every single Jewish man, woman, and child they could lay their hands on and do the same for the gypsies or anybody else they thought might become a threat to Germany. And that's what they did. And then they made two big mistakes. One, they kept a record. Which unit had entered which town, how many people they had killed. Near Kiev, there was a ravine, got to be known as Babi Yar, 33,771 Jews, 29, 30 September, 1941. And I had a report, top secret, sent to Berlin, consolidated with the other reports, and issued in a distribution list of 99 people, and I had the list, who later said they didn't know anything about it. All of these reports going out daily from Berlin to all of these high-ranking Nazis, tabulating how many people were killed. I took a little adding machine, I added up when I got to 100, I said, that's enough. Excuse me, when I got to a million, I said, that's enough. 
I then took a sample. I flew from Berlin to Nuremberg, met General Taylor. said, General, we have to put on a new trial. He said, we can't. All the lawyers are assigned. Pentagon is not going to agree to any new budgetary increases. We just can't put on another trial now. I said, you cannot let these people go. I have in my hand mass murder on an unheard of scale. And I've got the proof right here in my hand. You just can't let them go. He said, well, can you do it in addition to your other obligation, which was the research on all this? And I said, of course. So he said, okay, you do it. And so it came to pass that I became the chief prosecutor in what was certainly the biggest murder trial in human history. I then made more human history. I rested the prosecution's case in two days. Uh, I think today, today's court, the long it takes before they get the trial. Two days. They took them five months to come with their lies and alibis and so on. It took me a little while to repudiate all of them. They were all convicted, 22 defendants. Why only 22? We had 3,000 guys who every day were going out murdering people. They were all accomplices, every single one. Clear accomplices to mass murder. But we only had 22 seats. That was the trial against Goering and company. So for the ridiculous reason that we only had 22 seats, I had to pick 22 defendants. And how did I pick them? I picked them by their education and their rank. If they had a double doctorate, he's in the bag. Particularly, he was then probably at least a colonel. I picked SS generals. So everybody in that dock was a high-ranking, well-educated man. Doctor degrees, some with a double doctor degree. Doctor, Doctor Rush, he did the Babiyan job. These 33,771 Jews murdered in two days. Um, and uh, put him on trial. Uh, they were all convicted. Thirteen of them were sentenced to death. Now there, as a sideline, uh, it was expected that the prosecutor would ask for a death penalty in a case like that. I didn't. Uh, I didn't ask for any penalty other than uh, what I'll tell you. Why didn't I ask for the death penalty? I said, how can you balance in the scales of justice? A million people murdered, children by the thousands, shot one shot at a time, you know, with these 22 guys. There is no way that I could find justice in this. So, but if I can get a rule of law, which would protect everybody, because they were killed, because they didn't share the race and the religion and the ideology of their executioners. And I thought that was a horrible thing. And if I could get the court, persuade the court, to lay down a rule of law that killing people for those reasons is a crime against humanity, uh, punishable by whatever the court decides, I will have taken a step forward for the protection of everybody in the future, regardless of their race or creed. And that's what I was trying to do, very deliberately. The chief judge was Michael M. Westmano, a devout Catholic, who uh, had been a, in, the, in the Navy during the war, and he had a naval uniform, he was a captain, under his groves, and we got to be good friends after the trial. During the trial, we at long distance, uh, and uh, he <coughs> took a week off before the sentencing, 
and uh, went to a monastery and he consulted with his priest and then he came back and there we began, you know, for the crimes of which you have been convicted, this tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. The courtroom door opens a little lift, goes down into the basement of a death cell, drops down, next one opens the door, takes off the earphones, for the crimes of which you've been convicted, this tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. Now put it on, boom, down into hell, 13 times in a row. Well, that was the end of the trial. Ben, and, uh, let me stop you there because I think that you've already said so many things that are, uh, speak so much of the character of you as a man, but also of your values. Uh, and of the type of challenges really that uh, you are confronted with when you try to bring justice for these mass crimes. Um, I want to begin by asking you, how did your work as an investigator and then a prosecutor uh, shape your vision later on? I think you touched on it, but maybe if you can expand on that, um, in terms of what needed to be done for these crimes not to be perpetrated again in the future. Well, of course. The horrors that I personally witnessed are really incredible, just incredible. Uh, and uh, uh, I've often asked myself, what drives me? I mean, I'm 99 years old now, what drives me? And surely there is a traumatic effect of uh, what I have witnessed. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really unimaginable that human beings could behave in such an inhumane way. And uh, so I was trying. Then I said, we have to have a change in the way we approach other human beings, no matter what the crime is that we think they have committed. Uh, and uh, so I have been spending the rest of my life, most of them, I had to make a living for my kids too, but that's no way to make a living. But, uh, uh, I spent most of my life trying to change the way people think about war-making. It had been glorified for centuries as a way to power and freedom and, uh, and, and victory and glory and all that. And in fact, it's what I saw, people being murdered, little children one shot at a time, all the women being raped when the, in the course of the war by the Russian soldiers in Berlin was classic, it was the reward for victory, so-called victory. Uh, and all of that, has shaped my determination to do whatever I could to protect the future. I couldn't do anything for those who already killed the six million or ten million. Nobody knows how many people get killed in war. I know that from my own observation. I was there when we shoveled them with, with, with plows, snow plows, into holes in the ground. And uh, how many people die of heartache? How many people die of, of suffering and of sickness because of the war? Nobody knows the figures. But uh, surely, there must be some better way of organizing the relationship of one human being to another, which would prevent that from happening. So I want to return to this question of how do we change that relationship. But before, I want to talk a little bit more about something else in your legacy that I don't think it's discuss enough discussed and is a big part, really, of your legacy. Uh, after the trials, you uh, worked 
to really provide uh, compensation and restitution so to uh, as many victims as you could and in your earlier remarks you said well really how do you balance the uh, scale of justice what is fair compensation and restitution can you walk us through some of the um, uh, well, challenges I'm, I'm you glad encountered. you mentioned that uh, uh, because it's usually overlooked and I usually overlook it as well but there were two various phases in my life one is the war itself you know, doing what I could to bring it to an end. The next thing was to take care of the victims. To first say, well, I think before we got to the victims, took care of the criminals, stop the criminals, and use what you're sentencing, the power of the law, as a deterrent to any future actions along those lines. That was the goal. It was not vengeance on these handful of people. It was to create a legal deterrence for the future. But then, what about the victims? The victims, those that were still alive, the survivors, they, were, they had nothing except a tattoo on their arm. Their families had been killed, their property had been stolen, they'd been driven out of their country, they were sick. Uh, and so my first assignment then after that was from under military government law, requirement that those who had stolen property from the Jews or had been forced to transfer property under duress they would have to return the property and get back what they had given. Uh, if there were no claims, it was airless or unclaimed property, it would go to a successor organization, and that was me. Um, well, not you in your pockets. Well, I'll tell you, it was me. <laughs> I was approached by a representative of the American Joint Distribution Committee, which is a well-known Jewish charity taking care of cases of this kind. They sent a representative from Paris to talk to me in the Nuremberg at the time. And they said, look, we have this law that says that airless and unclaimed property can be claimed by a successor charitable organization and the proceeds used for the benefit of all the survivors. And we think that you should be the man for that job. You know your way around the army. By that time, I had a simulated rank of a general in the army. I had gone from sergeant of infantry when the war was over to general a few months later. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we think that you're the one. We don't, of course, we don't have any money to pay your salary except for the first six months. And, uh, but we don't think much will come. We have an obligation to try. So I took them over that job. I was the first employee. So I immediately declared myself to be the Director General of the Jewish Restitution Successor Organization, which was the official title, and then I have to get money to run the show. So I went to see General Clay, who was in charge, and uh, I said, look, I, I want to get this program going. He said, you've got to get, we had a four-month filing deadline. He said, I said, you've got to extend the deadline. He said, I can't. He said, well, I can't do it. I'm not going to extend it. And uh, I don't know when the Russians are coming in here. And we want to get these DPs, displaced persons, out of here as soon as possible. And we want to get this program out of the way. I said, look, I can't get it out of the way without funds. I need staff to go into all the real estate registries, find out who had transferred property, set up a staff, hire lawyers all around to do all this work. I said, can you lend me the money from U.S. share of occupation funds? He said, the British will never agree. He said, the French will never agree. It's all quadripartite controlled. I said, but I'll borrow it. I'll repay it when the time comes, when I get it back. He said, can I do that legally? And I said, 
have a memo in my pocket that says you can. He said, okay, go down and see Joe and tell him I said it's okay. So I went down and see Joe and I said, I just come from the general. We've got to put on a snappy program here. I need a million marks right away. It's like walking in and saying, I need $10 million. And he didn't care, it wasn't his money. I got the money and boom, off I went. <laughs> setting up and filed 163,000 claims for property before the filing deadline. <laughs> anyway, this is a sideline to getting down to the more important things. And then in 1951, it was Chancellor Adenauer, a very decent Catholic chancellor, uh, made a speech to the public, which he said, look, terrible crimes have been committed against the Jews in the name of Germany and imposed upon us an obligation to make amends, try to make amends. And uh, so the Jewish organizations, the same group that I had in the Jewish Restitution Organization, said, Ben, you know your way around. How about you, you undertaking that in addition, of course, to your other things? No additional pay, of course, but in addition to that. I said, okay, I'll do that too. And so I became the director of the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany. Um, and uh, that was a relatively small organization. The other one, claiming properties all around the world, I had to set up a legal aid society to help the people. I staff a thousand people with that. But the next phase of it was the uh, negotiated compensation agreement. Now there, an interesting point for you. We have enough time for all these stories. Um, I became a target of a terrorist group. Not only me, but the chairman of the claims conference, who was Malcolm Goldman, chairman of the World Jewish Congress, and a half dozen others who were working with me on trying to negotiate a treaty between West Germany and the claims conference and the state of Israel, which had given refuge to the victims as they came out. And um, there was a group in Israel who said, what? You're gonna sit down with these people who murdered my parents and talk to them about money? Have you no shame? Uh, it's a disgrace, Jewish son or anybody would sit down with these Nazi bastards and talk money. And uh, we'll kill you all, the Germans and you as well. And so there was a terrorist crime. And we were very closely guarded. It's all this information is not in public knowledge, maybe now in some of my recent writings, but that time it was hush-hush. Um, and uh, the guards, we had to be very careful. We were negotiating in the Hague, in the secret hideout in Castello de Vassenau, near where the court is now. And, uh, what was most interesting was that one of the leaders of the terrorist gang, as we know them, was a gentleman by the name of Menachem Bacon, who became the Prime Minister of Israel and also got the Nobel Peace Prize. So, you'd be surprised who gets Nobel Prizes. <laughs> well, but also, as you always say, be careful who you call a terrorist. Be careful who you call a terrorist. Um, so, um, story. It's complicated. Anyway, so I'm trying now, the next phase is to prevent it from happening again. Right. And that is the most important. I had four children born in Germany. People say, how'd you manage that? I said, the courts were off at a recess. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for the sake of the children, and those yet to come, there are not too many young people here. Um, I've been trying to build a future for them which would be safer than the past. And it's worse. It's very dangerous, as has been pointed out by the dean 
and uh, uh, we live in, and, and, and uh, Father Hare as well, in his early writing about nuclear weapons. We live in a very, very dangerous world today. The nuclear weapons are already obsolete. We have cyberspace. Uh, and here too, I'll tell you something which I haven't written much about. About 10 years ago, I had a meeting in St. Petersburg, Russia. It was a conference of disarmament or something like that. And there was an, the only other American there was a general. And uh, he was in civvies. And I said, uh, let's uh, have breakfast together. I said, what are you up to? He said, I'm working on the cyberspace problem. I never heard of cyberspace. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, you know, now, and he looked around, we're in a, in a dining hall, and quiet. he said, now, you know, we can now cut off the electrical grid on planet Earth from cyberspace. And I thought, cut off the electrical grid. You mean all the lights go out, everything goes out? Yeah, he said, yeah. No water pumps work, the hospitals don't work, the red light, the radio does work, nothing works. I said, and then, how long would it take for everybody to die? He said, well, I'm not familiar with any real studies that have been made on that subject yet, but it might depend upon the amount of water they had. If they had water, they probably could live for about a week. And uh, I said, well, I haven't had any studies. I know that from my limited experience, if you hang a man by the neck in eight to 10 minutes, you can pronounce him dead, but cyberspace. Um, well, it dawned upon me that uh, the old notions of state sovereignty, you can do whatever you like within your borders, which was very good sense 200 years ago. Today, it makes no sense at all. And with the cyber spread uh, danger hanging over your heads, and with billions of dollars are being spent, which could have been used for sending for the kids, there are not too many here, for their education, for the old people, for the hospitalization, the hospital care, for the refugees, to provide proper housing for them, instead of pumping in billions of dollars to preserve our nuclear arsenal, because we don't know what to do with the waste, and uh, to build cyberspace weapons which will kill everybody on this planet, uh, we've got to wake up. And uh, you may have seen that in that little flash there, when I talked to the young people, things have changed. Law is not static. Law changes and must change to meet the needs of society. And now the needs of this society are to prevent any future war. And so I have been working on defining aggression. The American government has fought me tooth and nail, but not in an open way. They have said, I've got to wear against it. No, no. Aggression is a terrible crime. But how do you define it? For 70 years, I sat in the UN and every meeting of the committee dealing with that, practically every committee, I heard the debates, hundreds of lawyers saying they can't define aggression. That, my friends, is a lot of baloney. They can define aggression, it has been defined. It was defined by Justice Jackson. He didn't put people on trial for crimes they didn't know were crimes. And we had an International Law Commission and we had all kinds of other definitions. It's an excuse given to conceal the fact, and that's the hub of the problem which you all have, and I, I don't have it anymore, I'm 99 years old. But the hub of the problem is, the United States and others uh, are not prepared to allow any foreign court judge the legality of the use of force by the United States. And uh, the Russians feel the same way. The Chinese have said, you do it first and then we'll see. We'll do it the same. 
Uh, and so uh, they pretend that it's because of the definition. Well, we have so many definitions. I wrote two volume book on defining aggression. And I got some stuff here even with me on, the, on all that topic. That's a lot of malarkey. Uh, that's an excuse. Politically, politically, they're not ready to accept it. Now, we have a great democracy. America is a great democracy. It's normal that there would be a difference of opinion on important subjects. And I welcome that. Uh, and they should be respected. But it doesn't mean you have to be followed if you think it's wrong. And I think the current policy will lead to the death of your children and your grandchildren. That's have no other choice. It's coming your way. And I see it coming. And I'm trying to warn you. And I want nothing for myself. Nothing. I'm 99 years old and that's, that's you know, I've seen it. So you've got to be prepared to think differently about the whole method of how do you deal with differences, fundamental differences in values of different things. Most of the causes of war are done by religion in the first instance, nationalism in the third, second, and economic circumstances in the third. And the people who are willing to kill and die for those particular causes are the people who are the most dangerous. And how do you cope with that? You teach, as I'm sure that is being taught here in the Divinity School, tolerance, compassion, a willingness to compromise. It's no disgrace to be willing to compromise. It takes courage not to be discouraged. It takes courage to try to find the other fellow's point of view and find a way of peaceful settlement of disputes. And that's what I'm hoping to do. And I'm very grateful uh, to the Harvard Divinity School. I hope the Harvard Law School would also be participant in this goal. They had some hesitations. Uh, uh, Dean Martha Minow was a dear friend also. And uh, it's going to take a re-education of the way people think about when they use force. Ben, and let me ask you one last question um, and then we can give the floor to <coughs> Professor Hare and Professor Bloom and then we can continue this discussion. Um, from what you've told us so far, it's obvious uh, to me, I think to everyone in the audience, that you face incredible odds and resistance uh, in pushing for your ideals. And um, sometimes it's fair, I think, to say that some of your ideas at times have been uh, belittled as the ideas of an idealist, as yes. if that was a bad thing. Uh, when you first said, uh, we need a permanent international criminal court, <laughs> you were told, well, that's not possible to do. And then you said, well, we need to criminalize aggression. And then you were told, ah, that's not possible to do. And yet, here we are today, we have the court, we have, we have jurisdiction on aggression. So my question to you is, how do you do it? Uh, how do you, how you stay so faithful to your goals and visions, but also how do you stay so positive? All right, for a question. I admit I'm an idealist. Um, I don't think that's a dirty word. Um, I believe it's possible to do the impossible. I can prove it to you, very simply. Look at our Constitution, the great American Constitution. Women had no right to vote, they couldn't own property. Tell it to the women in this room, running for president, head of state, so on. What a change. There were a couple of boys on a bicycle, they said you put a wing on it and you pedal it, it's going to fly. And they said if God wanted men to fly, would have given them wings. There are a thousand planes in the air at this moment, flying like birds, impossible. Sure, they told me it's impossible. Nations will never agree 
through a third party settlement over when they use force. I know it's going to be difficult, but we are beginning it. We have national courts now dealing with these terrible crimes that are being committed all around the globe. The Security Council has betrayed their trust, and I use the word advisedly. They were assigned, quote, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. They have not, and, uh, and they never did. They never had the courage to try to do it. So we have to make some changes there too. It can be done, and it will be done, and it must be done. That's my, what drives me. And I see it in my own life, my own capacity, a little guy from nowhere, you know? And I get all these distinguished people coming here and they're applauding me. <laughs> that always amuses me. They named the street after me, and they hey, you didn't mm -hmm. mention that. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and they now have a bench there, and you can sit down and rest with the Benjamin <laughs> Ferenc bench or whatever it is. I haven't seen it yet. I gotta go for a ceremony. But what I'm saying <laughs> is that if it makes good sense to you, it, it must now, that law is certainly better than war, no matter what. Even if you get a bad decision, it's better than a war. So I've argued law, not war, because people like slogans, and it's an easy slogan. And then to add to it another slogan, how do you get there? I give them three pieces of advice. One, never give up. Two, never give up. Three, never give up. That's it works. And so you got the point. And you'll be surprised how many young people are with me. And I look to the young people and to the women for taking the lead now on this. There's never been a war without rape. There never will be a war without rape. You want to stop rape, and I think we should try to stop rape. Uh, try to stop war making at the same time. So the ball is now in your court. Uh, I can't go on, I don't know how much longer, but as long as I can, I'm gone. <laughs> I'll take Professor Ayer, please, you have the floor. Now, Father Ayer's an old friend, so I'm going to see him when he's going to jeopardize our friendship here. <laughs> <laughs> so you came to hear a panel, and I came to be on a panel, but what we just saw was a remarkable oral history kind of thing that just needs to be preserved. And that was not a speech, that was a testimony. Testimony in the sense that the word is used in the scriptures, testimony in the sense of a life lived in the midst of complexity and danger, in the midst of the most awful human crime of the 20th century, and he comes out of it with that kind of humanity. That is an extraordinary accomplishment. It also makes any response rather intimidating. <laughs> and the only key to turn to the topic I've been asked to speak on for 12 minutes maximum, uh, the only thing that holds that together is that he can move from this powerful human experience 
and translate it into the need to shape things by law and policy and ethics, which is a much drier topic, a much more abstract topic. But once again, the wisdom of his life is he knows if we can't do that, then the potential is always open that someone else will have to do what he did. So that's my only defense to turn to this question I've been asked to address about the state of our security system that we use globally. The issue is about peace and security, and those two words have a long history. A long history that takes us through not just nations and states, but empires. And the stuff of history, which is a mix of tragedy and heroism, as you've heard about tonight. So what about this question of the state of our security system? Security systems have been part of world politics for centuries. We use the term in a technical sense today, but as you look back the, through the history of war and politics, security systems have always been built to try to make sure that the last war would be the last war. They look differently at different times. The Peace of Westphalia after the religious wars was a form of a security system. The 19th century balance of power was a form of a security system. The 20th century League of Nations was a security system. Woodrow Wilson, believing that the balance of power was what caused World War I, said what I seek to do is to move from a balance of power to a community of power. And what he meant by that was what came to be called collective security. Now the problem that security systems must face is framed, I think, by three words, community, sovereignty, and anarchy. There is one human community of equal dignity in each person, multiple cultures, multiple countries, but there still is one human community. Sovereignty is the way the world is organized to govern human communities. So sovereignty has a much more restricted sense than community. It's always a community of a given body of people. But the problem is when you have a single human community governed by multiple sovereignties, then what the political scientists will tell you is that you live in a world of anarchy. Anarchy not meaning constant, constant chaos, but anarchy meaning there's no center. There's no place where the law can be simply announced and enforced. No center of political authority that can make the law and guarantee its enforcement. That would be the hope of a man like Ben Franz, that we lived in a world where there was a center of authority that could announce a law and then make it be implemented in such a way that the chances of war at least would decline. What is the security system we have? In its broadest sense, our security system is the successor to the League of Nations. It is the UN Charter, fashioned in 1945, and the UN organization that lives and to seeks to implement that. 
This idea of collective security is embodied in the UN Charter, even as it was in the League of Nations. In a sense, the UN Charter resurrected the idea and then modified it. And in modifying it, it bowed to sovereignty. The UN was the creation of sovereign states. And so it bowed to sovereignty by saying the great powers have to be acknowledged because they weren't and the League failed. So we have the Security Council with the veto, a bow in the direction of sovereignty. And to some degree, the Charter also brings with it the legacy of Westphalia. Sovereign states who believe they have the right to use force under certain circumstances. So what we end up with in the security system of the Charter, as I read it, regarding the use of force, is a mixed system, the legacy of two paths. Article 2.4 is the one that Ben would hang his hat on. Force should not be used in the relationship of states, countries, and peoples. That's the bow to peace. Article 51 says sovereign states have the right to use force if they're attacked. They don't have an absolute right, they have a limited right, but it's a real right. Article 27 says that the uh, United Nations does not have the right to interfere in the domestic jurisdiction of sovereign states. Sovereignty surfaces again. But Chapter 7, of the Charter says, under collective security, if states are creating great crimes, even domestic jurisdiction can be voided. And we not only can use force to stop aggression, we can use force to stop human rights within states. Within that framework, then the, the Charter and our security system has developed ideas that weren't in the words of the Charter. So peacekeeping today is one of the ways we try to hold the security system together. Peacekeeping Chapter 6 of the Charter says essentially when you've had a conflict and there is at least a narrow strip of peace to be kept, then the UN can authorize forces to go in to keep the peace if the state grants consent, a bow to sovereignty. Going beyond chapter six, chapter seven says that peacemaking, the enforcement of peace where there is no peace, is once again possibly to be authorized by the Security Council so the UN becomes an authorizing agent to use force to prevent aggression. And most recently, peace building at the UN has now taken on life. Peace building is not about primarily the use of force. It's about how you act inside countries and across countries to prevent violence. It is meant to try to limit the use of force within violence and it is meant to rebuild countries, nations, and places after war has occurred. My only point about this is these three steps are innovations within the context of the Charter. Our security system 
is basically, I think, a mix of the UN, the League before it, Westphalia before that. It is a mixed system. It still needs to evolve. The challenge of our own time is that there's not one kind of war, there's three kinds of war. Most of us grew up in the Cold War where war meant the war between two empires armed with nuclear weapons. The world we live in today produces three kinds of war. Interstate war, like World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. Secondly, internal conflict, which raises the question of humanitarian intervention. So that raises the question of can you modify peacekeeping and peace enforcement in a third step, and that's called the responsibility to protect, which violates sovereignty another adaptation. So you have interstate war, secondly internal war and intervention, and then transnational war and terror. So now it is no longer just states, it's non-state actors that can act like states. So how to judge our security system today? Is it a failure because there are so many conflicts? I would argue that is not the case. Is it enough? I would argue it is not the case. But the road ahead is to build step by step, piece by piece, to move from Article 2.4 to responsibility to protect, to move from Chapter 7 to peace building. It's a multiple set of tasks, some of which have been creatively designed and some yet to be designed. But the powerful testimony we've heard tonight keeps us at work because what Ben France lived through, we would hope the world would never live through again. that uh, professor here had, uh, had the duty to follow uh, Mr. Friends's act. Well, it wasn't sheer luck, I can admit, that was at work. Uh, it's a tremendous honor to be in this event with, uh, with you, Mr. Friends, and with you, Professor Ayer. Um, professor Ayer, you, you uh, made the first transition maybe from the sublime to the mundane, and um, I, as an international lawyer, is going to bring us to the pedestrian, uh, so I apologize for that. Um, let me start with an uneasy, um, maybe politically incorrect truth to say in this room. Uh, force is sometimes necessary. And in fact, the reason Mr. Ferenz was able to prosecute in Nuremberg is because the Allies fought and won a brutal war. The ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, did not prevent the genocide in Srebrenica and did not stop the ethnic cleansing of Kosovo. And the ICTR in Rwanda was established after 800,000 to a million people were murdered with machetes over 100 days. That's about seven and a half people per minute, if you do the math. 
So war or force is sometimes necessary. And in fact, law and institutions cannot exist without a relatively secure and stable arena. The question is, is it used too often? Is it used only in the right place, under the right circumstances? Can we reduce the number of instances in which it is either necessary or appropriate or justified? And here, I would say to Mr. Friends, I am not sure that the definition of the crime of aggression is so straightforward, partly because of Professor Ayer's allusion to, for instance, humanitarian interventions or uh, the responsibility to protect. So let me start with uh, piling on and telling you everything that's wrong with the international system and sort of take the responsibility of the international lawyers who designed the system and who have not been able, whether it's their sole fault or not, is a different question. So as Professor Ayer told us, we live in still a Westphalian, Westphalian system of interstate world. Uh, we, my students often think, you know, it's always been this case. In fact, the nation state is a kind of recent phenomenon, if you think about it, the arch of history. Uh, 400 years, roughly. Uh, but this is what we now have. We live in an interstate world, and Friedrika alluded to the UN. People from the UN will often tell you we are a member's organization. Often when the UN is blamed for lots of things, they'll tell you, oh, we're not a thing, we're an amalgamation of things, which is called the states. If you have a complaint, go deal with them. And that system is still very much grounded in this idea of sovereignty. Sovereignty, as much as we talk about turning it into a responsibility, is mostly a shield. It is still mostly a shield. It is a shield from intervention. It is a shield from responsibility or from the good intentions, even, of others. So when a state fails to deliver on its own responsibility, either to its own citizens or to others, International law actually does not give us good uh, tools on how to deal with it other than through the goodwill of its leaders in any particular time. Sovereignty also means what we call in international law voluntarism. Countries pick and choose their obligations. By and large, this is still the case. There are very few rules that apply to everyone, regardless of whether they chose it or not. And in fact, most of international law, if you looked at it from sort of the Martian's perspective, is mostly about rights. It's the rights of states to defend themselves, the rights of states to be independent from external intervention, the rights of states to govern their territory. There are very few obligations, and even fewer obligations towards other states maybe may more so towards a state's own individuals today, but very few towards other states. We don't have a language of, or a very developed language of a duty of care, of concern, of redistribution, of assistance. We have rights. So we talk about the right to engage in targeted killings. We don't have a corollary obligation to also build a hospital or a school in the places that we target. And rights are both a limiting concept, but also an inviting concept. 
If I go to war and I justify it by the fact that I'm going to do good, I'm going to help people's rights, I'm going to protect them, I'm going to deliver democracy and the rule of law and gender equality, I have another, at least rhetorical, uh, a weapon in my toolkit that I can use. Clean water is part of the uh, Sustaining Peace Initiative. And as I read it, I thought, wow, isn't it the case that people should have access to clean water regardless of whether it leads to conflict or not? And it's interesting to hook that onto the Sustaining Peace agenda because, of course, that's the big agenda. We worry about peace and security. We can't really talk. We don't have the right language to talk about just caring that people will have access to water regardless of whether or not that's going to lead to an armed conflict later on. And the law here has been, has been a complete stagnation of the law. And especially the law that we call the use ad bellum, the things that uh, Mr. Ferencz is most concerned about, the issue of aggression, of when is it okay to use force in the first place. And it's quite remarkable given what has happened to the other branch of, uh, if you want just war theory, the use in bellum. So today we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of provisions regulating how we fight. We've made war incredibly illegalized or legalized regime where there are rules governing the conduct of hostilities, the treatment of victims, what constitutes a war crime, etc. And yet the rules on aggression, if you want, on when is it allowed to use force, are summed up in three single provisions of the UN Charter. They can't possibly answer all the questions. They don't. And we have no, we have not come to terms, we haven't found the political ability to clarify those, to expound on them, to really come to terms with what it would mean and what it would look like to have a more elaborate legal codex. That law, for instance, says nothing about non-international armed conflicts. It does not, in fact, regulate civil wars. None of it does. Okay. Compounding all of that is the complete malfunction of the institutions that were supposed to guide us through this exercise, expound on the laws, adjudicate those questions. And the UN system failure is not just a UN system failure. It's not just that the Security Council doesn't work. It's much worse than that. It is in place and it doesn't work. And the existence of the organization creates a path dependency that makes change that much more complicated because it not only provides for what is, it also talks about how or suggests how one might go about changing it. And the moment it's there and not functioning, it's much worse in some sense than not having it in the first place or starting out from scratch, just imagining what a system should look like, what functioning institutions should look like and try to come up with those. So the big concerns of our times are the, all those non-traditional international armed conflicts, the non-international, the internationalized, and all those are compounded by what uh, Ben alluded to as the proliferation of technology. The cyber element is interesting not only because it allows states and enormous amount of power to shut down the electrical grid, it allows individuals the power to do that. 
And some of the stuff that uh, I talk about in my book with Ben Wittes is exactly the rise of these technologies, whether it's robotic platforms, bioengineering, cyber, that devolve power and, if you want, democratize power and allow individuals and small groups to be threatening uh, from uh, anywhere around the globe. And the combinations of the rise of individuals, better or worse functioning states, um, technology, and lack of institutions is what makes the current system so complicated, so difficult, and so uh, kind of demanding of response. So I think some of the things we need to strive for is to think about requiring those who do go to war a much better and clearer articulation of why they're doing it, what are the goals they're trying to achieve, and what are the costs they think they're going to, uh, they're going to incur or impose on others. We don't even have that system. Under existing international law, states are supposed to tell the Security Council to report that they used force. In just war theory, you were supposed to give reasons. You were supposed to declare and explain why you're going to war. We don't explain anymore. We have one statement or one line. We don't specify what the goals are. We don't specify what we're seeking to achieve at what cost we think we can do that, or whether all other alternatives, in fact, have been exhausted. So force is sometimes necessary. I think it is sometimes justified. I also think no one gets to live with zero risk. We as individuals do not live with zero risk. We go about our lives always exposed to some risk. No state has the right in the present world to demand to live with zero risk. We are members of an international community. We enjoy the benefits of being in a network system. We have to shoulder some of the uh, costs of that. And I think to be more generous, more caring, more thoughtful uh, of how we go about our business. Thank you. Professor Blum and here, maybe if I could uh, invite you to take a seat here with us, we can have an opportunity. Uh, we'll give Ben an opportunity to respond to both of you because I know he, he's been uh, asking me he wants to say something. And then after that, hopefully we can engage with the rest of, of the audience uh, in this discussion. Uh, I'll keep my comments for later, but Ben, do you want to say First, something? My response or comment observation, I would say is better word to uh, uh, Father Hare's comments. He's given you a complete, accurate, clear presentation of the evolution of international law for the control of the conduct of independent states and comes to the conclusion that well, the world is the way we have it now and the only best way to get out of it is to pay more attention to humanitarian intervention uh, to correct the injustices as we find them. Um, 
very appealing and uh, it's in inadequate in my judgment and I'll tell you why. First we call it R2P now, Responsibility to Protect. That's, we used to call it humanitarian intervention. Humanitarian intervention got into disrepute because it was often used as the excuse to impose our will on a, another country which we didn't like the competition from and uh, we went in and wrecked it or whatever we did. And that's still the case. There, what is missing in that system, whether it's called R2P or humanitarian intervention, is a third party, an independent party, to determine when it's really humanitarian intervention, which is worthwhile, or it's subterfuge humanitarian intervention for the benefit of the intervenor. Uh, for that, you need a, not the parties themselves to decide, because they are both biased. And we don't have that. And what you said is very important. What we lack completely is enforcement. As long as we cannot enforce the law, the law is meaningless. And I'm very much aware of that. And I've written two volumes also on enforcing international law. I summarize it in the words, you don't have to buy the book. I have everything on my website is free. No enforcement, what do you expect? So we have not yet begun to work on a system of effective enforcement, which of course would require independent judgment, not of the participants in any particular dispute. Well, we haven't done that because we haven't suffered enough yet. We haven't gotten the lessons we should have learned in every war, <laughs> war that we've had. Uh, and there hasn't been enough awareness among the young people. Now my answer to how do you get out of that hole? We have to emphasize more the, I wrote a little book called Planethood, and the theme of that book is we are all inhabitants of one small planet and we must share the resources on that planet in such a way that everybody on that planet can live in peace and human dignity. That's the goal, planetary thinking, instead of what I call now obsolete. The state system, the state sovereignty is obsolete. It doesn't work in so many places that we have to rethink the order in which the members of this planet have to live if they're going to survive. So it requires new thinking, for new directions, and the fundamentals have to be, and that's why I come to the Divinity School, to teach them we have to have a change of heart and mind. Until you change the heart, you will not change the mind. And the heart must say that we are all human beings, and we're entitled to a minimum standard of human decency. And if you see somebody who's starving, don't ask him why he's starving, give him some food. Whatever the reasons may be. Until you've changed the heart, you cannot change the mind. Until you've changed the mind, you cannot change the politicians and those who bear the power. And these are the diplomats and the politicians. If the people will speak up as they did in Vietnam, and the Vietnam War, hell no, we won't go. And they march on Washington. I don't want them throwing rocks and I don't want to throw them guns either. I'm for a Pacific, a non-violent approach to all these problems, as was Martin Luther King and as was Gandhi and, and others. I follow in their footsteps. Uh, that's what we need, the change of heart and mind and a determination to let it be known to the, those in political power that we don't accept that anymore. And we're going to protest against it by whatever peaceful means is possible. And the education begins on the religious level because that's the most powerful educational tool we've got. Uh, 
and uh, so I'm glad to see you here. I'm glad to see him here. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> and uh, I take it from there. And it's a long way to go. So all your points were well taken. They were correct, accurate, good description. But you didn't come up with a solution. Now mine may not be any better than no solution. I won't be able to live as long as you. So I, I'll never, I haven't got as much time as you've had to think well, about I, this. I take it from a legal point and a moral point of view. Legally and moral obligation to give up the use of force as we go forward is no longer a suitable tool because it's too dangerous. Professor Bloom, something you said really resonated with me. Uh, that is that, of course, sometimes force is going to be necessary. And what we really need to be get better at is um, articulating better rationales for the reasons why we're sending our soldiers to war. And also um, making really clear what the cost is for using force, not just in terms of strategic objectives of any given conflict, but also in terms of what happens if you do use force when it isn't strictly necessary. So my question to you is, how can we do that better and why are we failing to do that? So I think in some ways the, the difficult conversation is what do you change first, the norms or the institutions and can you have one without the other uh, when you talk about change? Uh, I, I hear Ben's words, we need to stop war entirely, and, and they're wonderful and how can one argue with it, but I also think that in today's world, we're not there. No, we're and, not there. And, okay, and I, so, so I think the two realizations are that war or force is sometimes necessary, and yet the, it's obvious that it's been used too much, and we can talk about what we do, but there are other actors in the world. Of course. Um, and then you ask me, well, how do we get to change our policies? And I think that has to do, uh, so, so Ben alluded to um, the Vietnam protests. And of course, that is effective when you have a draft. If we're talking about the, the present American wars, uh, the problem is that the system of war today doesn't rely, at least the wars that we engage in, do not rely on a special taxation or a special draft. Uh, and unless you know somebody serving in the military, your closest to the war is not that close. Now, how many people here visited Iraq or Afghanistan? How many do know personally somebody who served in the armed forces or is still serving in the armed forces? Uh, we've become more remote from the war, which is sort of an instrument of policy making. In that sense, it is the return of the Kilobrian uh, idea and is very different from the wars that Ben witnessed or participated in. Uh, again, this is a very one particular type of war. It is irrelevant to many others that go on in the world, and you can't generalize or extrapolate from that, but you asked me specifically about here and now, how do we get people interested? Well, part of it is a problem even in Congress. You see debates about the authority to use military force, the AUMF, people talk about extending it, not extending it. There's the sort of technical justification, and you say, what is it that you hope to achieve? And what is it that you hope to achieve 
and there is a complete inability to articulate anything other than, oh, we'll get the terrorists, or we'll make it more safe. At the other end, you see sort of, in a, both Afghanistan and Iraq, a, a kind of a whole menu of how is it that we're gonna get safer? We're gonna get safer by introducing rule of law and democracy and human rights and schools for girls and agricultural production and child literacy. And all those things, if we can get them in Iraq and Afghanistan, will make us safer. And that was the, the, the real security belief. So now go back to the charter. The charter tells you you're allowed to use force in self-defense. It actually doesn't say a lot about how much self-defense what goals are permissible, at what cost. And that conversation never really involved or happened directly with the American people in the way that forced that kind of public participation and monitoring of what it was that was being sought or uh, um, pursued in those places. But again, that is a very particular context and we can't extrapolate from that to uh, the problems of a lot of other wars that are happening. Uh. No, but I think your answer is actually excellent and it leads me very well in the question that I wanted to ask um, Father Ayer. Actually, this, is, this question is built on something that both of you have touched upon in your remarks. You talked about changing the um, really conceptions and the language of international law so that we start talking more about um, um, duties as opposed to rights. And, um, Professor Hare said in his remarks that, it, you know, ideally the future of the uh, international security system is so that we move from, you know, uh, prohibition against interference into domestic affair to some form of R2P type of paradigm, or from peacekeeping as enforced by you know, the nation security council to peace building. And so in the context of tonight's conversation and also to relate it to um, this, the, the purpose really that the Sustaining Peace Initiative here has at the Divinity School, what is uh, the role um, and again part of the answer was um, addressed by Professor Bloom, but what is the role that the civil society but especially religious communities can play? The can you say that again? What is in, the, in, the in essential community? Yeah. Well, I, I use three terms. Uh, community can be understood as a moral term. It even can be understood as a theological term. Sovereignty is a legal term. Anarchy is a political term. The kind of topic we're talking about tonight cuts across these multiple disciplines, if you will. Uh, the, the idea of a community is only if you recognize certain philosophical ideas. We're not a world community as a structured entity. What, what, you co what counts as a community inside a nation doesn't apply to the world. If you believe philosophically that we are a shared humanity in which each person is embodied with equal dignity, that's one way to start looking at the world. In my view, it's the way you start to look at ethics and the world. But then you need to move to a different level because we're not organized as a community. We are organized as sovereign states. And so now you're in a different mode of discourse. You're talking about law and politics. You still don't want to lose the moral vision 
that you're trying to develop a world of law and politics that will work for the benefit of the whole community and not just some. But when you do it in terms of organized sovereign states, then you begin to ask the question how to organize sovereign states pursue not only their own interest, but what I would call a global interest. And it's a double, you have to work at two levels. You also have to deal with, I think, what Professor Blum is talking about, and that is to say that, you know, one of the great theologians that gets talked about in this room, I suspect still to this day, is Karl Barth, great Protestant theologian. Barth said of war that war was a Grenz morale. War was a moral limit case. That is to say, war can be morally necessary and justified, but it ought to be the last resort. It ought to be limited in its conduct and in its motivation. And therefore, when you're trying to deal with the welfare of the global community that is mediated through sovereign states, each state with the capacity to make war, then you have to ask the question, how do you build a system of law, politics, and ethics that set limits on what states can legitimately do and may necessarily do? Final point, none of these terms are clean. <laughs> so to go to Ben's point, you're absolutely right. Intervention has a bad history. So I always distinguish between what I call great power intervention. Great power intervention is, is 19th century great power politics. It's 18th century cabinet politics. Intervention by itself ought to be presumptively wrong. That's where sovereignty is helpful. Sovereignty gives you a, an in principle protection against intervention. The question is whether intervention should be absolutely wrong in all circumstances. And that's what Rwanda tells you. If you do that, you're going to regret it. So intervention has a bad history. Humanitarian intervention, I think, is a necessity in a world of sovereign states governing a global community when states can do harm not only by going outside their boundaries, but can do great harm inside, and that's the purpose of RTP, is to say when that kind of evil happens, you need to presumptively honor sovereignty, but you need to override it in certain circumstances. That's the idea of a Grenz morale. You're at the very edge of the moral universe, but you're still inside it. Okay, I was going to agree with, with uh, uh, Father Hare uh, that we now have to restructure our thinking about these fundamental things, the sovereignty. Sovereignty is obsolete in today's world. And humanitarian intervention is, of course, essential, but it's got to be controlled by people who are not the parties who seek right. gains for themselves. So uh, that's what we used to call law. <laughs> I, I, I always say... Doesn't allow for it. I always say when you try and think about world politics, you need to think about the ethics of character, 
the ethics of choice sure. and the ethics of community. That's the reason we end up in the divinity school. Uh, right, and the ethic problem. of character is about mind and heart. But remember your good friend Martin Luther King. When King was demonstrating and when King was leading a crisis of conscience in the King, country, oh yeah. people said to him, you've got to change their minds and hearts. That's right. But what King said was, I may not be able to get everybody to love me, but if I change the law, I can make them respect me. And that is the first step before you get to total conversion. Yes, I think that there's a few questions uh, from the audience. Uh, one, two, and third hands, I saw go up, and then four. Please introduce yourself very briefly. Oh, okay, my name is Cindy Singer, I'm a local lawyer. Um, when, when you said that you, when Ben said that, that you prosecuted the top 22 people, I was always under the impression that the message from the Nuremberg trials was not about the top people, but that the bottom people could not obey the top people. They had a moral and a legal duty not to obey when it was wrong. And I'm wondering if, that, if I, that's incorrect. And also I'm wondering what happened to the other 3,000 people? Were they allowed to get away scot-free? I'll answer the second one first because it's a clear fact. They were never tried. Uh, and then your, your first one. Uh, it's a phony argument, superior orders. Every German soldier was required to carry with him a little they called his old book, which looked a little bit like my passport, which I have here in my pocket. And in there it says that he has to obey all legal orders. He doesn't have to obey orders that are not legal. And killing little children, one shot at a time, is not legal, and everybody knew it. So that is no excuse. They got away because we couldn't stay in Germany forever having war crimes tried. I, I thought they didn't get away, so they can be prosecuted if they obey an order that's, that's not That's correct. It's not that's a crime. But um, can't try everybody. Yes, sir, um, you were at Nuremberg and you stared Nazis in the face and you looked them dead in the eye. What did you see? Did you see evil? Is it something that you could distinguish? from any other conflict? That's a very good question, because it's very often misunderstood. They asked me that on 60 Minutes. How could I meet with these monsters? You know, it killed thousands of children. And I said, they were not monsters. So how can you say they're not monsters? I knew the people. The man I was talking about was a major general of the SS, Dr. Otto Ollendorf, father of five children. He was not a monster. Uh, he was a patriotic German doing what he thought was in the interest of his country because he was told by the head of state that the Russians planned to attack and he therefore thought it was lawful for him to intervene first in order to prevent that attack. It's a type of argument you still hear from the Pentagon today, preemptive self-defense. The judge, Michael Mismano, uh, said that is not common sense, it's wrong in law and it's wrong in logic and it sentenced Ollendorf to hang. Um, now, I didn't attend the hanging. I was invited to go. I didn't want to go. I've got some films of it. But uh, the people who were the top people were the same as top people in the United States and other countries. They think they're serving their country by dropping the atomic bomb on Japan, killed thousands of children. Were they monsters? The question I put. To 60 minutes, she never answered. They're not monsters. Our system is such 
that you get desperate at the end, you don't know how to change it. We don't have the institutions available to provide humanitarian assistance in a fair tribunal, which the state is willing to accept. And so we have to recognize that the world is changing. It's changing very dramatically, particularly now with the cyberspace threat. And uh, it's all the more important to recognize that every human being is entitled to be treated as a human being, regardless, uh, including when it's a criminal. Uh, we outlaw torture, which used to be every palace, every prince had a torture chamber in Europe, you know, deal with the torture. The, the, the Vatican had a special list of special torture, which were very good. <laughs> but the things have changed, and we've got to recognize that and begin to build the changes that we need. And it begins with the heart and mind. That's the foundation stone. Once you have enough people who recognize that they need a change, we'll find a way of doing it. Um, yes, um, I think Dean Hampton wants to ask a question right away. Yes, please. So, so this is a little bit of a follow-on from that around cyberspace, and maybe mostly directed at at, at Gabriella. So there's an article uh, in today's New York Times, which I, I, you, you may have seen from uh, Christopher Kirchhoff, who has a Harvard connection. Um, and uh, the title of it is Silicon Valley Must Go to War. And the argument of it is really that um, he, he's arguing that the big um, tech companies in California um, uh, instead of remaining morally neutral in, um, uh, in this whole arena, uh, ought to be building closer bridges with the Pentagon to make uh, smarter uh, uh, cyberspace uh, um, uh, uh, war tools and mechanisms. Um, and the implicit argument of it is that it's better that the United States does this because it's a democratic society and it's, it, it, it's, there's going to be the um, the smartest kind of, um, um, of international force um, that um, it, it should be uh, US-led. Um, the problem with the article a little bit, I think, though I'd love to hear your views on this, is that um, there's no real clear delineation of the ethics of, of, of this. It, it seems almost like a Manhattan Project argument 70 years later, that if, if someone's going to have to have these kind of weapons and technologies, better us and better using the commercial sector and all of, all, all of that. So, so my question to you really is, um, um, should the big tech companies out west keep their distance from the Pentagon and the um, military establishment? or should they be cooperating with them in order to produce more advanced um, uh, uh, technologies uh, around the use of force because it's us having them? It's tough. So uh, one of the most hotly debated topic now when sort of my crowd is the uh, what's called the killer robot campaign and whether to uh, um, try and prevent or lead a call uh, where the leading governments would just decide, come together, and just like they banned other types of weapons, although very few types of weapons, there'll be a decision to ban uh, autonomous weapon systems or artificial intelligence, AI-based systems, uh, where the 
humans are taken out of the loop increasingly. And autonomy is not a one or one or zero; it's a, a spectrum. But essentially, the the, the big question is uh, who should make the ultimate decision to kill, whether it has to be a human or could it be a robot or a machine. And I took the article, the article refers to uh, the Pentagon Project Maven that is looking increasingly at the reliance on AI platforms in the Pentagon and development of, of technology. And at least a, a central argument in the uh, article wasn't even normative, it was just descriptive. The part of what makes this uh, so challenging is that it's exactly not the Manhattan Project. And it's exactly different from nuclear weapons in the sense that nuclear weapons we can still be monopolized in the sense that it takes a very particular access to the materials, to the knowledge, to the infrastructure. It's a very, very big deal to make a nuclear bomb. And so fortunately, it's still the case and we can limit the number of actors with access to it. The Silicon Valley problem and our problem is that everybody has access to AI. Bloomberg, uh, website, travel agencies, everything you do online today, financial services, uh, all the tech companies, every single, almost every single website you're using is now AI empowered and increasingly so. And the problem for Silicon Valley is that there is no dividing line between the AI that they develop for commercial, either benign or even benevolent purposes, and the same AI technology that can be uh, applied for military purposes. And that brings you into a whole set of ethical questions about what does it mean to have a war when you have no skin in the game? That you have machines fighting other machines. You're protecting American lives. You also make it cheaper, easier to go to war. There are lots, can you program these machines in a way that would follow the ethics and rules of warfare? How well can they do it? Even if they could, is it moral not to risk yourselves and uh, kill other people? So there's a whole host of these questions, and I think the point is whether you want the US to lead this or not. By the way, the United States has been a persistent, um, persistently reluctant to negotiate the rules over anything that the cyber world invites, whether it's a sort of cyber convention or what the rules are. Uh, there's a belief that if we move first and we set the rules, others would follow. May or may not be correct, uh, but I think that's a whole separate discussion that is fascinating, partly because it shows you how difficult it's going to be to maintain any monopoly over the use of force and over these kind of destructive weapons in the, in the years to come. Thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, Mr. Ferens, I can't uh, express my uh, feelings as to how happy I am to, to be here listening to you. I watched the 60 Minutes uh, last year when you were interviewed. Um, so uh, my question is, I'm just a member of the public. Um, regarding aggression, I'm not really sure why it's so difficult to basically know what it is. It's a little bit like por pornography. You can't really describe it, but you know what it is when you see it. So all these lawyers and academics sitting around trying to define what aggression is, I think there's a bit of an issue there from a public's point of view. But um, the question I have for you is, it seems like the Germans were fighting two wars. One was at the front, you know, against the British and, and the rest. 
but they were also fighting within. They were fighting their own people, and the Jews were their own people. So when you were at the Nuremberg trials, and you were looking at these people, and some of them, they look like they're waiting for a bus. They're just sitting there, you know, you know waiting for the verdict. What is it that you learned that you can share with us about the human psyche when it comes to aggression? Uh, good evening. My name is Anne Pratt. I'm a Harvard Fellow working on a new global paradigm of leadership based on the lessons of Nelson Mandela. And the question I have, which actually draws on points made from each of our wonderful panelists, um, Professor Bloomberg, you made the point that at times war is necessary. In, in the case of South Africa, Mandela himself said there was a certain point when war became necessary in the liberation struggle. Um, ben, you made the point about it needs a combination of heart and mind, and Mandela, by his own admission, went through his own personal transformation in jail, where he, he enabled his heart to rule his mind, rather than his, sorry, the other way around. <laughs> his mind to rule his heart and his anger, and it was that trans, personal transformation that enabled him to transition from being a freedom fighter to a president. And the point made by Professor Hare about community, um, having grown up in a, a very strong culture of Ubuntu, which is a very strong sense of um, an integration of humanity and building a South African society for a greater life for all, my question to all three of you is, where is the role of leadership in all of this and how do we kind of weave these different themes together in understanding what it takes of a leader of an organization, whatever that organization is in conflict, to transition out of conflict into peaceful reconciliation? Let's take one question at a time. Take okay. the first one. What did I learn about the hearts and minds of people who can be mass murderers? I learned that people can be mass murderers all people. If you just whip them up enough and tell them that something they value more than life itself is being threatened, such as their religion, such as their nationalism, their flag, uh, or their economic circumstance. If they believe those values are being threatened, they'll kill you or die trying, whether we're any country, all the same. The second question is what? Um, Traits of leaders, leadership. Yeah, so what is it, essentially, in, in short, what is the role of leadership role in all this, in transforming from violence to peace? Leadership is, by definition, a leader. You, I think you're asking that there should be good leaders and bad leaders. Hitler was also a leader. Uh, he was a leader who believed that one of his things should be done, you could kill all the Jews. I took a dim view of that, but uh, <laughs> that was more personal than otherwise. And uh, uh, leadership plays a very important role, but the most important role is not the leader, it's the people who follow. Use your common sense, use your brain, don't just follow blindly, because the leader tells you you've got to do it. Ask yourself why. Who's going to have to pay the price? What is the price? Is it worth paying? And if you don't think it's the right thing to do, don't do it. Tell the leader, you go, not me.
Uh, Professor Splubert here, do you have any maybe final thoughts to wrap up the conversation today? No, I think this has yes. been complicated enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been complicated enough. But on that, on that note, I will spare you my own comments and I'll bring the floor back to Dean Hampton. Thank you, please, uh, to all the panelists, of course, the three panelists today. So this will be very brief because I know we all want to go on to the reception. I'd just like to um, uh, present uh, Ben with some uh, very small gifts from the Divinity School. Oh, just what I always needed. Just <laughs> 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 to get your trip back to plural and more difficult. But um, there's a, a, a wonderful little... Oh, look at this. Yeah. Oh, look at that. It's going to say something nice on there. <laughs> hey, look at it. If I don't break it, before I get it home. Um, home. So it, it just says, um, religion uh, and the practice of peace, are in this school. Um, Friends for Sustainable Peace, Gratitude, Ben Ferenc. Oh, that's very 2018. nice. 2018. Thank you very much. I'd just like to say in conclusion, I, I think um, uh, uh, I think Brian Hare r r really put it very well at the start of his talk. That I think what we listened to tonight was a, uh, a remarkable oral history of a remarkable uh, person that was also a word of testimony um, uh, uh, to us and a, and a little bit of baton passing uh, to us that these are concerns that we need to be uh, deeply invested in. So thank you for that. And thank you to our other two uh, 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 panelists who had the tough job of uh, n n not being able to um, uh, deliver an oral history in quite the same way, but, um, but with a real sense of the complexity of the issues facing us and how they're changing pretty quickly um, uh, in, in front of us. Uh, so th these are something that we, um, uh, you know, in a place like Harvard, use all the kind of tools, disciplines, um, approaches that we can muster to think well about these uh, problems which are uh, big and difficult to get our minds around. So finally then, please do come to our reception. Please do um, um, look at the books that are out there from uh, Ben Ferenc. We look forward to seeing you again in the fall when we'll have our fifth series, our fifth colloquium series in the RPP. If you have any suggestions on things or people or ideas or issues, we should be addressing, please let us know. Make sure you join our mailing list so that we can hound you relentlessly. <laughs> um, and that's it. Thank you so much for coming.